American Notes, Chapter Three, Part Two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. American Notes by Charles Dickens, Chapter Three, Boston, Part Two. At South Boston, as it is called, in a situation excellently adapted for the purpose, several charitable institutions are clustered together. One of these is the State Hospital for the Insane, admirably conducted on those enlightened principles of conciliation and kindness, which twenty years ago would have been worse than heretical, and which have been acted upon with so much success in our own pauper asylum at Hanwell, evince a desire to show some confidence and repose some trust even in mad people said the resident physician as we walked along the galleries his patients flocking round us unrestrained of those who deny or doubt the wisdom of this maxim after witnessing its effects if there be such people still alive i can only say that i hope i may never be summoned as a juryman on a commission of lunacy whereof they are the subjects for I should certainly find them out of their senses on such evidence alone. Each ward in this institution is shaped like a long gallery or hall, with the dormitories of the patients opening from it on either hand. Here they work, read, play at skittles and other games, and when the weather does not admit of their taking exercise out of doors, pass the day together. In one of these rooms, seated calmly and quite as a matter of course, among a throng of mad women, black and white, were the physician's wife and another lady with a couple of children. These ladies were graceful and handsome, and it was not difficult to perceive at a glance that even their presence there had a highly beneficial influence on the patients who were grouped about them. Leaning her head against the chimney-piece with a great assumption of dignity and refinement of manner, sat an elderly female in as many scraps of finery as Madge Wildfire herself. Her head in particular was so strewn with scrapes of gauze and cotton and bits of paper, and had so many queer odds and ends stuck all about it, that it looked like a bird's nest. She was radiant with imaginary jewels, wore a rich pair of undoubted gold spectacles, and gracefully dropped upon her lap as we approached a very old greasy newspaper in which I dare say she had been reading an account of her own presentation at some foreign court. I have been thus particular in describing her, because she will serve to exemplify the physician's manner of acquiring and retaining the confidence of his patients this he said aloud taking me by the hand and advancing to the fantastic figure with great politeness not raising her suspicions by the slightest look or whisper or any kind of aside to me this lady is the hostess of this mansion sir it belongs to her nobody else has anything whatever to do with it it is a large establishment as you see and requires a great number of attendants she lives you observe in the very first style she is kind enough to receive my visits, and to permit my wife and family to reside here, for which it is hardly necessary to say we are much indebted to her. She is exceedingly courteous, you perceive. On this hint she bowed condescendingly, and will permit me to have the pleasure of introducing you a gentleman from England, ma'am, newly arrived from England, after a very tempestuous passage, Mr. Dickens, the lady of the house.' We exchanged the most dignified salutations with profound gravity and respect, and so went on. The rest of the mad women seemed to understand the joke perfectly, not only in this case, but in all the others except their own, and be highly amused by it. The nature of their several kinds of insanity was made known to me in the same way, and we left each of them in high good humour. 
not only is a thorough confidence established by those means between the physician and patient in respect of the nature and extent of their hallucinations but it is easy to understand that opportunities are afforded for seizing any moment of reason to startle them by placing their own delusion before them in its most incongruous and ridiculous light every patient in this asylum sits down to dinner every day with a knife and fork and in the midst of them sits the gentleman whose manner of dealing with his charges i have just described at every meal moral influence alone restrains the more violent among them from cutting the throats of the rest but the effect of that influence is reduced to an absolute certainty and it is found even as a means of restraint to say nothing of it as a means of cure a hundred times more efficacious than all the straight waistcoats fetters and handcuffs that ignorance prejudice and cruelty have manufactured since the creation of the world in the labour department every patient is as freely trusted with the tools of his trade as if he were a sane man in the garden and on the farm they work with spades rakes and hoes for amusement they walk run fish paint read and ride out to take the air in carriages provided for the purpose they have among themselves a sewing society to make clothes for the poor which holds meetings passes resolutions never comes to fisticuffs or bowie knives as sane assemblies have been known to do elsewhere and conducts all its proceedings with the greatest decorum the irritability which would otherwise be expended on their own flesh clothes and furniture is dissipated in these pursuits they are cheerful tranquil and healthy once a week they have a ball in which the doctor and his family with all the nurses and attendants take an active part dances and marches are performed alternately to the enlivening strains of a piano and now and then some gentleman or lady whose proficiency has been previously ascertained obliges the company with a song nor does it ever degenerate at a tender crisis into a screech or howl wherein i must confess i should have thought the danger lay at an early hour they all meet together for these festive purposes at eight o'clock refreshments are served and at nine they separate immense politeness and good breeding are observed throughout they all take their tone from the doctor and as he moves a very chesterfield among the company like other assemblies these entertainments afford a fruitful topic of conversation among the ladies for some days and the gentlemen are so anxious to shine on those occasions that they have been sometimes practising their steps in private to cut a more distinguished figure in the dance it is obvious that one great feature of this system is the inculcation and encouragement even among such unhappy persons of a decent self-respect something of the same spirit pervades all the institutions at south boston there is the house of industry in that branch of it which is devoted to the reception of old or otherwise helpless paupers these words are painted on the walls worthy of notice self-government quietude and peace are blessings it is not assumed and taken for granted that being there they must be evil disposed and wicked people before whose vicious eyes it is necessary to flourish threats and harsh restraints they are met at the very threshold with this mild appeal all within doors is very plain and simple as it ought to be but arranged with a view to peace and comfort it costs no more than any other plan of arrangement but it speaks an amount of consideration for those who are reduced to seek a shelter there which puts them at once upon their gratitude and good behaviour instead of being parcelled out in great long rambling wards where a certain amount of weazen life may mope and pine and shiver all day long 
the building is divided into separate rooms each with its share of light and air in these the better kind of paupers live they have a motive for exertion and becoming pride in the desire to make these little chambers comfortable and decent i do not remember one but it was clean and neat and had its plant or two upon the window-sill or row of crockery upon the shelf or small display of coloured prints upon the whitewashed wall or perhaps its wooden clock behind the door the orphans and young children are in an adjoining building separate from this but a part of the same institution some are such little creatures that the stairs are of lilliputian measurements fitted to their tiny strides the same consideration for their years and weakness is expressed in their very seats which are perfect curiosities and look like articles of furniture for a pauper's doll-house i can imagine the glee of our poor law commissioners at the notion of these seats having arms and backs but small spines being of older dates than their occupation of the board-room at somerset house i thought even this provision very merciful and kind here again i was greatly pleased with the inscriptions on the wall which were scraps of plain morality easily remembered and understood such as love one another god remembers the smallest creature in his creation and straightforward advice of that nature the books and tasks of these smallest of scholars were adapted in the same judicious manner to their childish powers when we had examined these lessons four morsels of girls one of whom was blind sang a little song about the merry month of may which i thought being extremely dismal would have suited an english november better that done we went to see their sleeping-rooms on the floor above in which the arrangements were no less excellent and gentle than those we had seen below and after observing that the teachers were of a class and character well suited to the spirit of the place i took leave of the infants with a lighter heart than ever i had taken leave of pauper infants yet connected with the house of industry there is also an hospital which was in the best order and had i am glad to say many beds unoccupied it had one fault however which is common to all american interiors the presence of the eternal accursed suffocating red-hot demon of a stove whose breath would blight the purest air under heaven there are two establishments for boys in the same neighbourhood one is called the boylston school and is an asylum for neglected and indigent boys who have committed no crime but who in the ordinary course of things would very soon be purged of that distinction if they were not taken from the hungry streets and sent here the other is a house of reformation for juvenile offenders they are both under the same roof but the two classes of boys never come in contact the boylston boys as may be readily supposed have very much the advantage of the others in point of personal appearance they were in their schoolroom when i came upon them and answered correctly without book such questions as where was england how far was it what was its population its capital city its form of government and so forth they sang a song too about a farmer sowing his seed with corresponding action as such parts as tis thus he sows he turns him round he claps his hand which gave it a greater interest for them and accustomed them to act together in an orderly manner they appeared exceedingly well taught and not better taught than fed for a more chubby-looking full-waistcoated set of boys i never saw the juvenile offenders had not such pleasant faces by a great deal and in this establishment there were many boys of colour i saw them first at their work basket-making and the manufacture of palm-leaf hats afterwards in their school where they sang a chorus in praise of liberty 
an odd and one would think rather aggravating theme for prisoners these boys are divided into four classes each denoted by a numeral worn on a badge upon the arm on the arrival of a newcomer he is put into the fourth or lowest class and left by good behaviour to work his way up into the first the design and object of this institution is to reclaim the youthful criminal by firm but kind and judicious treatment to make his prison a place of purification and improvement not of demoralization and corruption to impress upon him that there is but one path and that one sober industry which can ever lead him to happiness to teach him how it must be trodden if his footsteps have never yet been led that way and to lure him back to it if they have strayed in a word to snatch him from destruction and restore him to society a penitent and useful member the importance of such an establishment in every point of view and with reverence to every consideration of humanity and social policy requires no comment one other establishment closes the catalogue it is the house of correction for the state in which silence is strictly maintained but where the prisoners have the comfort and mental relief of seeing each other and of working together this is the improved system of prison discipline which we have imported into england and which has been in successful operation among us for some years past america as a new and not overpopulated country has in all her prisons the one great advantage of being enabled to find useful and profitable work for the inmates whereas with us the prejudice against prison labour is naturally very strong and almost insurmountable when honest men who have not offended against the laws are frequently doomed to seek employment in vain even in the united states the principle of bringing convict labour and free labour into a competition which must obviously be to the disadvantage of the latter has already found many opponents whose number is not likely to diminish with access of years for this very reason though our best prisons would seem at the first glance to be better conducted than those of america the treadmill is conducted with little or no noise five hundred men may pick oakum in the same room without a sound and both kinds of labour admit of such keen and vigilant superintendence as will render even a word of personal communication amongst the prisoners almost impossible on the other hand the noise of the loom the forge the carpenter's hammer or the stone-mason's saw greatly favour those opportunities of intercourse hurried and brief no doubt but opportunities still which these several kinds of work by rendering it necessary for men to be employed or very near to each other and often side by side without any barrier or partition between them in their very nature present a visitor too requires to reason and reflect a little before the sight of a number of men engaged in ordinary labour such as he is accustomed to out of doors will impress him half as strongly as the contemplation of the same persons in the same place and garb would if they were occupied in some task marked and degraded everywhere as belonging only to felons in jails in an american state of prison or house of correction i found it difficult at first to persuade myself that i was really in a jail a place of ignominious punishment and endurance and to this hour i very much question whether the humane boast that it is not like one has its root in the true wisdom or philosophy of the matter i hope i may not be misunderstood on this subject for it is one in which i take a strong and deep interest 
I incline as little to the sickly feeling which makes every canting lie or maudlin speech of a notorious criminal a subject of newspaper report and general sympathy, as I do to those good old customs of the good old times which made England even so recently as in the reign of the third King George, in respect of her criminal code and her prison regulations, one of the most bloody-minded and barbarous countries on the earth. If I thought it would do any good to the rising generation, I would cheerfully give my consent to the disinterment of the bones of any genteel highwayman, the more genteel, the more cheerfully, and to their exposure piecemeal on any signpost, gate, or gibbet that might be deemed a good elevation for the purpose. My reason is as well convinced that these gentry were as utterly worthless and debauched villains as it is that the laws and jails hardened them in their evil courses, or that their wonderful escapes were effected by the prison turnkeys in those admirable days had always been felons themselves, and were, to the last, their bosom friends and pot companions. At the same time I know, as all men do or should, that the subject of prison discipline is one of the highest important to any community, and that in her sweeping reform and bright example to other countries on this head, America has shown great wisdom, great benevolence, and exalted policy. In contrasting her system with that which we have modelled upon it, I merely seek to show that with all its drawbacks ours has some advantages of its own. The House of Correction, which has led to these remarks, is not walled like other prisons, but is palisaded round about with tall rough stakes, something after the manner of an enclosure for keeping elephants in, as we see it represented in eastern prints and pictures. The prisoners wear a party-coloured dress, and those who are sentenced to hard labour work at nail-making or stone-cutting. When I was there the latter class of labourers were employed upon the stone for a new custom-house in course of erection at Boston they appeared to shape it skilfully and with expedition though there were very few among them if any who had not acquired the art within the prison gates the women all in one large room were employed in making light clothing for new orleans and the southern states they did their work in silence like the men and like them were overlooked by the person contracting for their labour or by some agent of his appointment in addition to this they are every moment liable to be visited by the prison officers appointed for that purpose the arrangement for cooking washing of clothes and so forth are much upon the plan of those i have seen at home their mode of bestowing the prisoners at night which is of general adoption differs from ours and is both simple and effective in the centre of a lofty area, lighted by windows in the four walls, are five tiers of cells, one above the other, each tier having before it a light iron gallery, attainable by stairs of the same construction and material, excepting the lower one, which is on the ground. Behind these, back to back with them, and facing the opposite wall, are five corresponding rows of cells, accessible by similar means, so that, supposing the prisoners locked up in their cells, an officer stationed on the ground with his back to the wall has half their number under his eye at once, the remaining half being equally under the observation of another officer on the opposite side, and all in one great apartment. Unless this watch be corrupted or sleeping on his post, it is impossible for a man to escape, for even in the event of his forcing the iron door of his cell without noise, which is exceedingly improbable, the moment he appears outside and steps into that one of the five galleries on which it is situated, he must be plainly and fully visible to the officer below. Each of these cells holds a small truckle-bed, in which one prisoner sleeps nevermore. 
It is small, of course, and the door being not solid but grated, and without blind or curtain, the prisoner within is at all times exposed to the observation and inspection of any guard who may pass along that tier at any hour or minute of the night. Every day the prisoners receive their dinner, singly, through a trap in the kitchen wall, and each man carries his to his sleeping-cell to eat it, where he is locked up, alone for that purpose, one hour. The whole of this arrangement struck me as being admirable, and I hope that the next new prison we erect in England may be built on this plan. I was given to understand that in this prison no swords or firearms or even cudgels are kept, nor is it probable that so long as its present excellent management continues, any weapon, offensive or defensive, will ever be required within its bounds. Such are the institutions at South Boston. In all of them, the unfortunate or degenerate citizens of the State are carefully instructed in their duties both to God and man, are surrounded by all reasonable means of comfort and happiness that their condition will admit of, are appealed to as members of the great human family, however afflicted, indigent, or fallen, are ruled by the strong heart, and not by the strong, though immensely weaker, hand. I have described them at some length, firstly because their worth demanded it, and second because I mean to take them for a model, and to content myself with saying of others we may come to, whose design and purposes are the same, that in this or that respect they practically fail or differ. I wish by this account of them, imperfect in its execution, but in its just intention honest, I could hope to convey to my readers one hundredth part of the gratification the sights I have described afforded me. To an Englishman, accustomed to the paraphernalia of Westminster Hall, an American court of law is as odd a sight as, I suppose, an English court of law would be to an American. Except in the Supreme Court at Washington, where the judges wear a plain black robe, there is no such thing as a wig or gown connected with the administration of justice. The gentlemen of the bar, being barristers and attorneys too, for there is no division of those functions as in England, are no more removed from their clients than attorneys in our court for the relief of insolvent debtors are from theirs. The jury are quite at home, and make themselves as comfortable as circumstances will permit. The witness is so little elevated above, or put aloof from, the crowd in the court, that a stranger entering during a pause in the proceedings would find it difficult to pick him out from the rest. And if it chanced to be a criminal trial, his eyes, in nine cases out of ten, would wander to the dock in search of the prisoner in vain, for that gentleman would most likely be lounging among the most distinguished ornaments of the legal profession, whispering suggestions in his counsel's ear, or making a toothpick out of an old quill with his penknife. I could not but notice these differences when I visited the courts at Boston. I was much surprised at first, too, to observe that the counsel who interrogated the witness under examination at the time did so sitting but seeing that he was also occupied in writing down the answers, and remembering that he was alone and had no junior, I quickly consoled myself with the reflection that law was not quite so expensive an article here as at home, and that the absence of sundry formalities which we regard as indispensable had doubtless a very favourable influence upon the bill of costs. In every court ample and commodious provision is made for the accommodation of the citizens, this is the case all through America. In every public institution the right of the people to attend, and to have an interest in the proceedings, is most fully and distinctly recognized. 
There are no grim doorkeepers to dole out their tardy civility by the sixpennyworth, nor is there, I sincerely believe, any insolence of office of any kind. Nothing national is exhibited for money, and no public officer is a showman. We have begun of late years to imitate this good example. I hope we shall continue to do so, and that, in the fullness of time, even deans and chapters may be converted. In the civil court an action was trying for damages sustained in some accident upon a railway. The witnesses had been examined, and counsel was addressing the jury. The learned gentleman, like a few of his English brethren, was desperately long-winded, and had a remarkable capacity of saying the same thing over and over again. His great theme was Warren the Engine-Driver, whom he pressed into the service of every sentence he uttered. I listened to him for about a quarter of an hour, and coming out of court at the expiration of that time, without the faintest ray of enlightenment as to the merits of the case, felt as if I were at home again. In the prisoner's cell, waiting to be examined by the magistrate on a charge of theft, was a boy. This lad, instead of being committed to a common jail, would be sent to the asylum at South Boston, and there taught a trade, and in the course of time he would be bound apprentice to some respectable master. Thus his detection in this offence, instead of being the prelude to a life of infamy and a miserable death, would lead, there was reasonable hope, to his being reclaimed from vice and becoming a worthy member of society. I am by no means a wholesale admirer of our legal solemnities, many of which impressed me as being exceedingly ludicrous. Strange as it may seem, too, there is undoubtedly a degree of protection in the wig and gown, a dismissal of individual responsibility and dressing for the part, which encourages that insolent bearing and language, and that gross perversion of the office of a pleader for the truth so frequent in our courts of law. Still, I cannot help doubting whether America, in her desire to shake off the absurdities and abuses of the old system, may not have gone too far into the opposite extreme, and whether it is not desirable, especially in the small community of a city like this, where each man knows the other, to surround the administration of justice with some artificial barriers against the hail-fellow-well-met deportment of everyday life. All the aid it can have in the very high character and ability of the bench, not only here but elsewhere, it has and well deserves to have, but it may need something more, not to impress the thoughtful and the well-informed, but the ignorant and heedless, a class which includes some prisoners and many witnesses. These institutions were established, no doubt, upon the principle that those who had so large a share in making the laws would certainly respect them but experience has proved this hope to be fallacious. For no man knew better than the judges of America that on the occasion of any great popular excitement the law is powerless, and cannot, for the time, assert its own supremacy. The tone of society in Boston is one of perfect politeness, courtesy, and good breeding. The ladies are unquestionably very beautiful, in face, but there I am compelled to stop. Their education is much as with us neither better nor worse. I had heard some very marvellous stories in this respect, but not believing them was not disappointed. Blue ladies there are in Boston, but like philosophers of that colour and sex in most other latitudes, they rather desire to be thought superior than to be so. Evangelical ladies there are likewise, whose attachment to the forms of religion and horror of theatrical entertainments are most exemplary. 
ladies who have a passion for attending lectures are to be found among all classes and all conditions in this kind of provincial life which prevails in cities such as this the pulpit has great influence the peculiar province of the pulpit in new england always excepting the unitarian ministry would appear to be the denouncement of all innocent and rational amusements the city the chapel and the lecture-room are the only means of excitement accepted and to the church the chapel and the lecture-room the ladies resort in crowds wherever religion is resorted to as a strong drink and as an escape from the dull monotonous round of home those of its ministers who pepper the highest will be the surest to please they who strew the eternal path with the greatest amount of brimstone and who most ruthlessly tread down the flowers and leaves that grow by the wayside will be voted the most righteous and they who enlarge with the greatest pertinency on the difficulty of getting into heaven will be considered by all true believers certain of going there though it would be hard to say by what process of reasoning this conclusion is arrived at it is so at home and it is so abroad with regard to the other means of excitement, the lecture, it has at least the merit of being always new. One lecture treads so quickly on the heels of another that none are remembered, and the course of this month may be safely repeated next, with its charm of novelty unbroken and its interest unabated. The fruits of the earth have their growth in corruption. One of the rottenest of these things there has sprung up in Boston a sect of philosophers known as transcendentalists on inquiring what this appellation might be supposed to signify i was given to understand that whatever was unintelligible would certainly be transcendental not deriving much comfort from this elucidation i pursued the inquiry still further and found that the transcendentalists are followers of my friend mr carlyle or i should rather say of a follower of his mr ralph waldo emerson this gentleman has written a volume of essays in which among much that is dreamy and fanciful if he will pardon me for saying so there is much more that is true and manly honest and bold transcendentalism has its occasional vagaries what school has not but it has good healthful qualities in spite of them not least among the number a hearty disgust of kant and an aptitude to detect her in all the million varieties of her everlasting wardrobe and therefore if i were a bostonian i think i would be a transcendentalist the only preacher i heard in boston was mr taylor who addresses himself peculiarly to seamen and who was once a mariner himself i found his chapel down among the shipping in one of the narrow old waterside streets with a gay blue flag waving freely from its roof in the gallery opposite to the pulpit were a little choir of male and female singers a violoncello and a violin the preacher always sat in the pulpit which was raised on pillars and ornamented behind him with painted drapery of a livery and somewhat theatrical appearance he looked like a weather-beaten hard-featured man of about six or eight-and-fifty with deep lines graven as it were into his face dark hair and a stern keen eye yet the general character of his countenance was pleasant and agreeable the service commenced with a hymn to which succeeded an extemporary prayer it had the fault of frequent repetition incidental to all such prayers but it was plain and comprehensive in its doctrines and breathed the tone of general sympathy and charity which is not so commonly a characteristic of this form of address in the deity as it might be that done 
he opened his discourse taking for his text a passage from the song of solomon laid upon the desk before the commencement of the service by some unknown member of the congregation who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning on the arm of her beloved he handled his text in all kinds of ways and twisted it into all manner of shapes but always ingeniously and with a rude eloquence well adapted to the comprehension of his hearers indeed if i be not mistaken he studied their sympathies and understandings much more than the display of his own powers his imagery was all drawn from the sea and from the incidents of a seaman's life and was often remarkably good he spoke to them of that glorious man lord nelson and of collingwood and drew nothing in as the saying is by the head and shoulders but brought it to bear upon his purpose naturally and with a sharp mind to its effect sometimes when much excited with his subject he had an odd way compounded of john bunyan and balfour of burley of taking his great quarto bible under his arm and pacing up and down the pulpit with it looking steadily down meantime into the midst of the congregation thus when he applied his text to the first assemblage of his hearers and pictured the wonder of the church at their presumption in forming a congregation among themselves he stopped short with his bible under his arm in the manner i have described and pursued his discourse after this manner who are these who are they who are these fellows where do they come from where are they going to come from what's the answer leaning out of the pulpit and pointing downward with his right hand from below starting back again and looking at the sailors before him from below my brethren from under the hatches of sin battened down above you by the evil one that's where you come from a walk up and down the pulpit and where are you going stopping abruptly where are you going aloft very softly and pointing upward aloft louder aloft louder still that's where you are going with a fair wind all taut and trim steering direct for heaven in its glory where there are no storms or foul weather and where the wicked cease from troubling and the weary are at rest another walk that's where you're going to my friends that's it that's the place that's the port that's the haven it's a blessed harbour still water there in all changes of the winds and tides no driving ashore upon the rocks or slipping your cables and running out to sea there peace 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 all peace another walk and patting the bible under his left arm what these fellows are coming from the wilderness are they yes from the dreary blighted wilderness of iniquity whose only crop is death but do they lean upon anything do they lean upon nothing these poor seamen three raps upon the bible oh yes yes they lean upon the arm of their beloved three more raps upon the arm of their beloved three more at a walk pilot guiding star and compass all in one to all hands here it is three more here it is they can do their seamen's duty manfully and be easy in their minds in the utmost peril and danger with this two more they can come even these poor fellows can come from the wilderness leaning on the arm of their beloved and go up 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 
raising his hand higher and higher at every repetition of the word, so that he stood with it at last stretched above his head, regarding them in a strange rapt manner, and pressing the book triumphantly to his breast until he gradually subsided into some other portion of his discourse. I have cited this rather as an instance of the preacher's eccentricities and his merits, though taken in connection with his look and manner and the character of his audience, even this was striking. It is possible, however, that my favourable impression of him may have been greatly influenced and strengthened, firstly by his impressing upon his hearers that the true observance of religion was not inconsistent with a cheerful deportment and an exact discharge of the duties of their station, which, indeed, it scrupulously required of them, and secondly by his cautioning them not to set up any monopoly in paradise and its mercies. I never heard these two points so wisely touched, if indeed I have ever heard them touched at all, by any preacher of that kind before. Having passed the time I spent in Boston in making myself acquainted with these things, and settling the course I should take in my future travels, and in mixing constantly with its society, I am not aware that I have any occasion to prolong this chapter. Some of its social customs, as I have not mentioned, however, may be told in a very few words. The usual dinner-hour is two o'clock, a dinner-party takes place at five, and at an evening-party they seldom sup later than eleven, so that it goes hard but one gets home even from a rout by midnight. I never could find out any difference between a party at Boston and a party in London, saving that at the former place all assemblies are held at more rational hours, that the conversation may possibly be a little louder and more cheerful and a guest is usually expected to ascend to the very top of the house to take his cloak off, that he is certain to see, at every dinner, an unusual amount of poultry on the table, and at every supper at least two mighty bowls of hot stewed oysters, in any one of which a half-grown Duke of Clarence might be smothered easily. There are two theatres in Boston, of good size and construction, but sadly in want of patronage. The few ladies who resort to them sit, as of right, in the front rows of the boxes. The bar is a large room with a stone floor, and there people stand and smoke and lounge about all the evening, dropping in and out as the humour takes them. There, too, the stranger is initiated into the mysteries of ginsling, cocktail, sangaree, mint julep, sherry cobbler, timber doodle, and other rare drinks. The house is full of boarders, both married and single, many of whom sleep upon the premises, and contract by the week for their board and lodging, the charge for which diminishes as they go nearer the sky to roost. A public table is laid in a very handsome hall for breakfast, and for dinner, and for supper. The party sitting down together to these meals will vary in number from one to two hundred, sometimes more. The advent of each of these epochs in the day is proclaimed by an awful gong which shakes the very window-frames as it reverberates through the house and horribly disturbs nervous foreigners. There is an ordinary for ladies and an ordinary for gentlemen. In our private room the cloth could not, for any earthly consideration, have been laid for dinner without a huge glass dish of cranberries in the middle of the table, and breakfast would have been no breakfast unless the principal dish were a deformed beefsteak with a great flat bone in the centre, swimming in hot butter, and sprinkled with the very blackest of all possible pepper. Our bedroom was spacious and airy, but, like every bedroom on this side of the Atlantic, very bare of furniture, having no curtains to the French bedstead or to the window. It had one unusual luxury, however, in the shape of a wardrobe of painted wood, something smaller than an English watch-box, 
or if this comparison should be insufficient to convey a just idea of its dimensions, they may be estimated from the fact of my having lived for fourteen days and nights in the firm belief that it was a shower-bath. End of chapter 3